0: Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 12th episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, February 10. I post episodes every other Wednesday. I'd like to begin by thanking this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. Next firm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212 292 1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Today, I'm mixing things up a bit. Generally, this has been a biographical podcast where I interview some notable lawyer or judge about their life and career. Today, however, I'm going to go for a topical podcast where I interview experts about an interesting subject in the news. Today's topic, the U.S. News Law School Rankings. Last November, Dean Heather Gerken of Yale Law School announced that Yale would be withdrawing from the influential law school rankings put out each year by U.S. News, i.e., not providing U.S. News with the data that it asks of ranked law schools in order to put together its rankings. In the weeks and months that followed, dozens of other law schools followed suit, and as of this recording, around 40 law schools have announced their withdrawal from U.S. News, including 12 of the so-called Top 14, or T14, schools. In the wake of these defections, U.S. News and its rankings czar, Chief Data Strategist Robert Morse, announced a radical revamp of the U.S. News methodology. They announced that U.S. News would no longer rely on any proprietary data from law schools in putting together its rankings and would instead rely only on one publicly available data, including disclosures the schools must make to the American Bar Association or ABA, and two reputational surveys about the schools, which U.S. News generates itself. The first U.S. News rankings under the new methodology are expected to be published in March. For folks who follow legal education, the defection of top law schools from U.S. news was a huge story and even spilled over into the mainstream media with coverage in The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Slate, for which I wrote a piece. And it comes at a time when other major changes are looming for legal education, including a possible end to affirmative action, depending on how the Supreme Court rules in cases against Harvard and UNC, and a possible abandonment of the law school admissions test as an admissions requirement, although the demise of the LSAT might be postponed in light of a recent vote by the ABA House of Delegates against the proposed change. To make sense of all these developments, I invited two of the smartest and most thoughtful observers of the world of legal education to join me on the podcast. In alphabetical order, my first guest is Anna Ivy, founder of Ivy Consulting, which advises applicants on applying to selective law schools and colleges in the United States. Anna is the former dean of admissions at the University of Chicago Law School, from which she herself graduated and where she served on the law review. My second guest is Dan Rodriguez, the Harold Washington professor at Northwestern Law, where he teaches and writes on administrative law, local government law, statutory interpretation, federal and state constitutional law, and the law-business-technology interface. He served as dean of Northwestern Law from 2012 to 2018, and as dean of the University of San Diego School of Law before that. He graduated from Harvard Law School. I could go on at great length about both Anna Ivey and Dan Rodriguez, who have long and distinguished careers, but I will instead just put their bios and Twitter pages in the show notes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Anna Ivey and Dan Rodriguez. Dan, Anna, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Hi, David.
0: Glad to be here. So I guess you are both actually in California. So I appreciate your taking the time to chat with me on Pacific Time. So let's dive right in. This is a hot topic, and you are, as I was saying before we started recording, two of the most knowledgeable and thoughtful and smart observers of legal education. So, Dan, let me start with you. What is your sort of big-picture take on what is going on with the U.S. news rankings in terms of the law school's withdrawing and then U.S. News and Bob Morris announcing all of these changes to the methodology? Do you think this is a good or bad thing?
2: So, as befits an old-time law professor, I guess I feel, on the one hand, on the other hand, zeitgeist about this. So, on the one hand, to quote the great artist, Wizzo, I think it's about the end time. I do think that, you know, finally, and kudos to uh, Dean Heather Gerken, who you know well, and so do I, who took a meaningful step that many of us, you know, speaking as a former dean, had wanted to and thought about doing and, you know, in the privacy of our own offices, pounded the table and said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we withdrew from U.S. News? But we never really did. And I think the you know, boulder rolling down the hill, starting by Yale and continuing through, certainly a lot of the so-called elite law schools has shed a spotlight on you know an important conversation, not simply measured by the number of schools that have withdrawn, but the sort of iterative conversation with U.S. news. On the other hand, I think that in many respects it's a tempest in a medium-sized teapot. We seem to have, you know, despite the news about so many schools withdrawing from U.S. News. The last time I looked at one of the blogs on that, a minority of schools, indeed, less than 25% of schools have withdrawn, although it's continuing, could of movement. And if you actually combine the schools that have indicated that they're going to maintain U.S. News rankings and provide data, and those that have indicated they've pulled out, as of this week, it's still less than a majority of all 200 law schools that have said something one way or the other. So that, combined with what I'm sure we're going to get into, which is what the impact of this will be on legal education, makes me suggest that it's big news for journalists, maybe somewhat less big news for those who matter, which, of course, are the law schools, students, potential students, etc.
0: Thank you, Dan. Anna, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I have not been a fan of the rankings, as people in my orbit know, and my newsletter readers one of the freedoms that comes with being a former dean of admissions (laughs) rather than currently representing an institution is that I have been able to speak a bit more freely than if I were still in an official role with a university. So I've had the luxury of being a bit more vocal and blunt about my feelings about the rankings. And from where I sit, where we work with a lot of applicants and we cross paths with a lot of applicants, field a lot of applicant questions, I can certainly confirm that they're still very, very rankings conscious, very very rankings driven, which would be neither here nor there if I didn't see them sometimes making some poor decisions from where I sit around their school lists and some of the decisions they make around full fare at school A versus, you know, a cheaper ride somewhere else. And I still see the distortions in decision-making that the rankings cause. And I'm well aware of how the rankings, of course, also cause some serious distortions in the admission side of the desk. I've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. So I'm not sorry to see schools withdrawing from them. I agree with Dan. As a practical matter, I think this is more about optics than anything else. They're good optics, but as we saw on the undergrad side, when schools have refused to participate in the U.S. news rankings, and the big example that comes to mind is Reed College took a stand years ago not to participate in the rankings. And for your listeners, participating in the rankings when you're sitting on the school side means you have to fill out all these forms and, you know, give them all this data. U.S. News punished Reed (laughs) for refusing to participate and Reed from one year to the next dropped a whole bunch of slots in the rankings. So it's no surprise to me that Yale was the first mover because it had to be the school that benefited most in the rankings that would be the first mover. So it was not surprising to me that, you know, it would be Harvard, Yale, Stanford. I'm also not surprised that plenty of schools just, you know, shrugged because, I think if you're not Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and sort of in those Olympian heights of law schools, the rankings really do influence as well the way applicants think about your school. You have all these constituents who care about the rankings, even if you personally think they're stupid, right? Your trustees, your alums, your current students, employers. So even if you think the rankings are silly and harmful, you have all these constituents out in the wider world who still care. So if U.S. News ends up punishing Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, and we can talk about Chicago, which is where I worked, that sort of somewhat notoriously took a stand to stay in the rankings, <laughs> which doesn't surprise me. You know, I think if Harvard, Yale, and Stanford suddenly drop from their high, high positions in the rankings, I don't know that anyone will care, honestly, because They've had such Teflon-like brands for such a long time. I don't know that in the wider public of people who care about law school rankings that all of a sudden they're going to have a lesser opinion of Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, you know, if the rankings decide to punish them. So that'll be a question mark. I think that remains to be seen. But I don't think all of a sudden people will have a different opinion about Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. What do you guys think about that? So actually, I had a question
0: for Dan because, Dan, you've had a lot of great commentary on this on Twitter. And the issue Anna raised about schools getting punished, I think one thing that happened with the punishment was when U.S. News has this proprietary data that it gets from the schools directly that's non-public, if the school doesn't participate, I think U.S. News would come up with these numbers on its own. I think you call them maybe placeholder values or something like that in your Twitter thread, Dan. And sometimes when U.S. News comes up with them, maybe it comes up with them in an unfavorable way and it hurts the schools. But what's notable about the sort of revamp to U.S. news is now Bob Morse and U.S. News have announced they're going to be relying only on public data, meaning that they don't have to come up with any imputed values. So what do you think the new U.S. News rankings are going to look like, Dan? Is Bob Morse going to kind of take a two-by-four to the kneecaps of like Harvard and Yale? Or in order for the rankings to have some semblance of legitimacy, do they kind of have to look like the old rankings? I mean, if Harvard comes in number 30, Isn't that kind of more the joke on U.S. news?
2: Yes. So let me say cynicism times two. Let me start with cynicism about Bob Morris and U.S. news. I think that the last thing you said is absolutely true. Probably all three of us are old enough to remember the uh, Thomas Cooley rankings from many, many years ago. (laughs) right When the then dean decided to rank law schools and Thomas Cooley ended up number five in the country and everybody got a big chuckle about that. Right. So there is, of course, a legitimacy factor that is baked in all of this. And it doesn't necessarily mean that legitimacy stands or falls on the rankings looking exactly like they have before the withdrawal. I think there will be some turbulence, particularly as you move down the rankings. But I don't imagine that they'll look profoundly different. And the reason why I say cynically is I think that Morris understands that and understands that based on the information, like you said, most of which is publicly available, which, to Anna's point, makes it look different than 30 years ago or whenever it was when the undergraduate ones come. Now I said times two, the other part of cynicism is I think law school deans know that. (laughs) And I think the law schools that withdrew from US News, I'm not a mind reader of Dean Gherkin or any of the others, but I suspect having been a dean that you can now with a stroke of a pen or a stroke of a computer, reverse engineer the rankings in a pretty important way, especially given what you know about the publicly available data and have at least some boundaries knowing how far your school will drop or how far your school will climb. Now, there's still a collective action issue and all of that. But I think that the impact will not be tectonic, and schools will know that. Now, again, to Anna's point, the fact that they won't be tectonic and, you know, Yale won't drop to 30 is important, but it's not the whole story. And there are sort of 200 law schools, and there are law schools that exist in the U.S. News Orbit, and I was the dean of one of those law schools, University of San Diego, that would move 20 spots one year and 15 spots the other up and down and up and down. And I think for those schools whose reputations are enormously impacted by where they are in the rankings, too much so in my editorial opinion, and those very much do worry about whether these you know changes and tweakings of the formula and the decision of some schools to pull out and some schools to stay in will make a significant difference on whether they're going to remain, I don't know, 85th in the U.S. rankings or 105, which does drive student student applicants say, in an important way. And I think in some ways that gets less of the ink, as we say, than what the so-called T-14 schools do. But I think in terms of the reality of admissions on the ground, that makes a huge difference.
0: I'm curious, Dan, now that U.S. News is going to be relying on public data, plus its reputational surveys, which I guess are proprietary to U.S. News, but in other words, U.S. News is no longer relying on schools to give them information like expenditures per student. What does it mean for a school to withdraw from U.S. News? I understand why it was courageous when Heather Gerken withdrew Yale, although I guess you could argue Yale had a strong market position. Maybe it wasn't, you know, super courageous, but I still think it was bold. I think you still have to give credit to Dean Gurkin for that. But what does it mean now when I read, you know, last week that some school withdrew? Is it sort of just like virtue signaling at this point? You know, I'm
2: glad you used that phrase because if you hadn't, I was going to use that phrase. (laughs) So there's an enormous amount of virtue signaling that's going on here. Although I hasten to add, that's not always a bad thing. Virtue signaling is underrated, frankly, to signal virtue on the part of the school that, you know, we're going to take a stand. And a number of deans, of course, beginning with Dean Gerken, but continuing through many, many deans, me, not one of them because I'm not a dean, have articulated, I think, in some really bold and eloquent ways why they're not going to make decisions, educational decisions on the basis of U.S. news and the destabilization of the rankings, not the ending of the rankings, because they're not going away, but the destabilization of the rankings gives schools an opportunity to double down on initiatives like public interest fellowships and, you know, all of that. But your point is essential, which is that what does it mean to withdraw from those rankings? I think the devil's in the details, in the detail here that's critical is what exactly Bob Morse is going to do with the reputational surveys. Because we know anything about U.S. News formula in law schools, it's that reputational surveys, the surveys of lawyers and judges, surveys of academics, are a very key point. So two quick points. Number one is he said that, he's announced that, he's reducing the amount of weight that's put on reputational surveys, but he has not, consistent with his behavior and performance over the years told us exactly how much that will be reduced, number one. And two, here's a key point. We don't know whether or not lawyers, judges, and even academics are going to no longer fill out those surveys. That's not public information, but academics, deans, associate deans, the most recently tenured faculty, heads of the appointments committee, have these four surveys that go to every academic, if you look closely None of the schools have necessarily said, we're going to forbid our faculty members from filling out these surveys. So I don't want to be too cynical in saying this, but it's possible that law schools, even those law schools that have announced they're withdrawing from U.S. News, may still fill out these reputational surveys on the assumption that strategic behavior, if they don't fill them out, other folks will fill them out. And if that happens, then there's even less to the impact of the withdrawal than there would be because this data is being provided along with publicly available data.
0: interesting.
2: So I'm sorry, that, that's sort of in the weeds, but it's important to be in the weeds to answer your good question of what the heck difference is this actually going to make in terms of the survivability of U.S.
0: news? Yeah, no, I think that's a key question. And I think a lot of people are wondering what exactly are these new rankings going to look like and how transparent is U.S. news going to be about the inputs? Anna, do you have any thoughts on what Dan was just saying. And I'd be especially interested in hearing any thoughts you might have based on where you sit. You have a team of folks who advise applicants going through this process. And I'd be curious to hear what you're hearing from the applicants and whether you think this is a good thing for the applicants. I do want to return to Dan and talk about whether this is a good or bad thing for legal education, which Mm. he hinted at in his last Mm -hmm. response. But I'd like to hear from you, Anna, on where the applicants fit into all of this.
1: I don't want to purport to speak for all applicants, but from what I'm hearing, it's a whole big nothing burger for applicants. You know, they still have a certain hierarchy in their minds that has been grafted on there over the years. I mean, think about even the concept of T14, right? Is totally rankings driven. There's nothing magical about one through 14 versus, I don't know, 15 and 16. And it's kind of ridiculous that we all even use the term, but it has worked its way into the vernacular, of course. And if I recall, the origins of that phrase go back to, you know, these are the 14 schools that are consistently ranked in the top of U.S. news. But, you know, the idea that there's some line in the sand at 14 is just absurd on its face. But as I was alluding to earlier, if the rankings end up looking different going forward because they have changed the weighted algorithm and the factors that go into that weighted algorithm, whatever they are, I always tell applicants, you know, your priorities don't have to be the same as one person at U.S. News and World Report. You know, if your interests and your priorities align perfectly with that weighted algorithm that they come up with. Great. They've done the work for you. You're in luck. But I would always encourage that people really dig in deeper because it's a shortcut mentality. You know, I don't need to do my own research because U.S. News has done it for me, which is why every year for many years, we talk to a good number of people who have their hearts set on Yale Law School, (laughs) even though we know they're not getting into Yale Law School, first of all, and we tell them that. And second of all, not everyone's a good fit for Yale Law School. You know, as we know, schools have different cultures and different institutional priorities. But, you know, they just look at those rankings and, well, that's been ranked number one for however long. So that needs to be my number one choice, even when our advice falls on deaf ears sometimes. So I would not be sad to see all of that go away. At the same time, I understand that people want information and Yes, there are these ABA disclosures. And yes, if you know where to look on the LSAC website, you can go find them. But I can appreciate that people want easier access to information and more transparency. And some schools are more transparent than others, right? Some of the top schools, for example, do not participate in the LSAC odds calculator. And so they, I think, encourage some magical thinking among applicants because they're not publishing their odds data in that database the way every other school does among those ABA-approved law schools. And so, you know, they'll say in podcasts things like, oh, well, you can't get in if you don't apply. And I'm thinking, then please publish how many people you let in in the last five years with a 162 LSAT, because if that number is zero, maybe people should know that too, you know? So magical thinking is alive and well. I can appreciate this hunger for information, but I would argue that the rankings are pretty poor substitute for that. But yeah, big nothing burger among applicants. They don't care what's going on at U.S. News. I could be wrong. You know, if the rankings change in some material way or the outcomes change in some material way, there might be some chatter on Reddit. Is that going to mean that Yale, Harvard, Stanford and, you know, down the list takes some kind of big hit? I doubt that very much. And let's not forget to Dan's point too, there are a lot of law schools that have a stake in the rankings. They're part of that ecosystem and it is a collective action problem and it is hard to disentangle oneself. I mean, you can't walk through an airport in America without seeing an advertisement. Our such and such program is ranked number five by U.S. News and World Report. We see that even on banners hanging from lampposts, you know, here in major (laughs) cities. So the schools, many of them are invested in this as well. Chicago, and I don't know if other schools took as public a stance as Dean Miles at Chicago. You know, he wrote a defense of continuing to participate in the rankings. I'm not surprised that part of his argument rested on the fact that, you know, it's a magazine and we believe in free speech. They can do whatever they want. And I certainly can understand that reasoning. I think there's a difference though between saying, you know what, they have a right to do what they want and actively participating in the rankings. I do distinguish between those two things. Dan would probably have a better insight into this than I do. But, you know, among the law professors that I'm in touch with, I don't think any of them will be sad to see those reputational questionnaires go the way of the dodo if they don't have to fill them out anymore i think orin Carr, now at berkeley wrote a really insightful tweet thread a few years ago about when he got the reputational ranking survey and he's like i don't know how all these schools stack up for you know expertise in ip law versus antitrust versus whatever it's like how would i know <laughs> it gets so granular so i haven't heard a whole lot of faculty say oh i would really miss those reputational surveys but it'll be interesting. Are there faculty out there that still want to fill those things out?
2: I do. I feel a little sad about it, actually. Yeah. Maybe i am just to confess my inner nerdism about law schools. But I, always <laughs> felt, having filled them out, you know, almost every year in some fashion, I had an incentive to learn more about the schools. Now, I'm not going to mm. sit here and say I knew, you know, the difference about 200 schools. But I developed some little bit of, you know, seat-of-the-pants expertise about a number of schools because I Mm -hmm. felt that it was important to learn about them to fill out the rankings. But, you know, am I the modal voter? You know, I have no idea.
1: Well, and I think that's the sticking point. It is 200 schools. How could you possibly have insight into this granular differences among all these institutions, right? I mean, it's kind of silly as a premise, right?
0: This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the best next step for your career, Next firm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact Next firm at 212-292-1000 or email development at nextfirm.com today to learn more. I'm curious, Anna, you mentioned the odds calculator and you had mentioned admissions and the rankings influence admissions. They were a factor in the U.S. news calculus and vice versa. The admissions may also influence the rankings. Do you think we are going to see schools be more flexible, especially on numerical things under the new ranking system? And again, I know there are tons of question marks. We don't know exactly what the new methodology is going to be. But one thing that I think deans did talk about was just I think they did feel a little hamstrung by some of the U.S. news factors. Do you predict that maybe admissions will become less predictable?
1: I think very much rests on what these changes will be. To that weighted algorithm. I mean, this is true across the board. This is not specific to law schools, right? Whatever that weighted algorithm is, schools are going to respond to it. Applicants will respond to it, you know, in terms of the inputs. And can I give a little shout out to some of the other rankings out there, you know, even above the laws rankings, which if I remember correctly, are still focusing more on outputs versus inputs which always made more sense to me to focus on outputs rather than what are incoming LSAT scores. Who cares? I mean, honestly, to this day, it's for some reason, it's always men. I don't think I've ever had a woman come to me, but they're grown men who tell me like what their SAT scores were or what their LSAT scores were. And I'm like, Who on God's green earth could possibly care, but it becomes this important part of their identities. The whole thing is so ludicrous, you know. So I do know that admissions officers certainly would appreciate more flexibility and to not be so beholden to the rankings. I think what would affect that a lot more, though, would be whatever the ABA ends up finally doing with test optional.
2: And what the Supreme Court is going to do or June and July with this decision. Yeah.
1: So there are a lot of moving parts here that are going to influence each other, right? So, and we can all make predictions about these things. Personally, I thought the ABA ultimately would go test optional. So I was wrong in that prediction.
2: Too soon to tell, Anna. Too soon to tell. Too soon to
1: tell. Too soon to tell.
2: It's a, you know, novel whose last chapter has not been written.
1: Have you noticed, though, that the kind of non-specialized media. So the David Latts of the world obviously know this stuff, you know, inside and out. The more general media, though, really, I think, misreported what the ABA was doing around test optional. I saw a number of, you know, really big name media report as if the ABA had, like this decision had already been made, right, to go test optional, even though, you know, there's this whole bureaucratic decision tree that it has to go through, right? There are multiple levels of approvals. So that was sort of a hot mess in the media, I found, the way they were reporting movements on the ABA side around test optional. I will say, and I hope I'm wrong, I would think that the current supreme court will be striking down race conscious admissions policies what do you think dan
2: 100% well let me back away from that i should never say 100% about it, anything about the supreme <laughs> court so let 99% me, let me walk back from that <laughs> and say highly likely and as they're highly likely i don't want to detract us from the topic that david introduced about us news but let's just say there is a perfect storm there's three events that are going on that are overlapping is the us news event. There is the ABA. And I mean that. I didn't mean that glibly when I said it's one chapter in an ongoing novel, not only because the ABA processes, but remember, all the ABA requires is a valid and reliable admissions test. We have now sort of succumbed to this notion that, I mean, for many years, that was, oh, well, the only one that's eligible is the LSAT. The ABA has never required the LSAT. They've required a valid, reliable admissions test. And in the interest of disclosure, I've been working with ETS for couple of years now, and was part of the effort to have the GRE included. But it doesn't just mean that the LSAT and the GRE are included. There's other alternatives. University of Arizona has, if your listeners don't know about this, JD Next, which is a really remarkable initiative. So the jury's still out about what tests or alternative tests will develop. And then, as Anna mentioned, the affirmative action decision, which circles all the way back, David, to your question is, I do think that in the intermediate term, There will be less of a reliance on the medians of the test, principally the LSAT, inevitably given law schools pushing, maybe not all the way toward test optional, but pushing toward alternative metrics because it's not only what schools do in admitting students, but it's how they allocate financial aid. And that's, of course, been an enormous impact that's had all sorts of ripple effects. So as the reliance on admissions testing declines, as I believe it will under any of these scenarios, but particularly if the Supreme Court puts a stake in the heart of the use of racial preferences, as I think is likely, then U.S. News will have to go along with that. And there'll have to be some changes to how they calculate and assess admissions metrics.
0: Let me ask you this then, Dan, as you and Anna have been talking about, there have been a bunch of things that are all kind of happening or potentially happening at the same time. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of legal education in light of all these changes, in light of all these moving parts? I think that many of the critiques that were leveled at US News, for example, by Dean Gherkin, it incentivizes this sort of misalignment of aid, allocating it to people with high scores, or you know, the expenditure per student metric, which I guess is not going to be part of the new rankings because it's not an ABA. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an ABA required disclosure. So, but then again, there's all this other stuff going on. So Again, it's such a fuzzy question. Answer it however you like. But are you optimistic or pessimistic about where legal education is going in 2023?
2: I'll give you a short answer that befits the time constraints we have. I am optimistic and here's why. I think we're moving from an era in which many, not all, but many law deans and education leaders were frankly too passive, too reactionary and used the combination of ABA rules and regulations along with uh, U.S. News and also sort of (laughs) their seat-of-the-pants behavioral judgments about what students do or don't do as an excuse for keeping business as usual. So even sometimes choices that law schools made that if you actually look at the fine print were not decreed by the ABA, (laughs) but were sort of choices law schools made in a world in which they felt like, hey, this is what law schools do. You know, We can't use, for example, financial aid for need-based scholarships because law schools don't do that. They mostly use it for emeritators. I could give you other examples. And I think we're going through a move, and I think a lot of what we're calling virtue signaling, the statements the deans are making, if you really, if customers, students, employers, education Mm -hmm. leaders like yourself and other legal folks put pressure on schools, then I think schools will be much more imaginative and creative. I don't wish the Supreme Court decides the way they do. I mean, you and I may have a reasonable disagreement about that, but I think the reality of that is we're gonna see a very different world in terms of law school discretion. If law schools use this discretion, newfound discretion and obligation to actually make meaningful changes in the educational content of what they're providing, then I think we're gonna see some really important changes not next year, the year after, but in the next 10 years that will actually be to the benefit of legal education. I really feel optimistic about that. And I say that as somebody whose leadership is sort of in the rearview mirror, my own leadership in law schools. But I think this new generation of deans and of law schools are really terrific and ambitious and are change agents.
0: Anna, same question to you. And by the way, I should say, one of the reasons I wanted to have both of you on is you have been in those seats of dean and admissions dean, but you're not currently in those seats. And so I felt that you would be very candid. And I am pleased to say that I was correct. But Anna, what about you? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about what this is all going to add up to?
1: You know, I think law schools have a certain culture. And to Dan's point, it is in flux. Sometimes cultures, their hands are forced by events like COVID or other things, the Supreme Court. But if I look at the bigger higher ed picture, so not just law schools, Law schools have had so little innovation in their curriculum. They've had so little innovation in the admissions process. And let me give a shout out to Northwestern, and I would be saying this even if Dan were not my fellow guest here on this podcast episode. Northwestern has always been the big shining outlier when it comes to innovation, both especially around admissions, but also with the curriculum. Of course, the curriculum has to follow ABA rules, and that's very hidebound as well. But we've seen so much more innovation with undergrad admissions. Mm -hmm. We've seen so much more innovation with MBA admissions. Law school has just been same old, same old, same old for so long. I mean, think about the fact that one of the biggest changes was adding the GRE (laughs) to the (laughs) list of acceptable tests. And that was the (laughs) biggest (laughs) change in a long, long time. In law school admissions. So I think these are certain cultures that are very deep seated in the law school world, and those hands are going to be forced by external circumstances, whether it's from one place or another. I think innovation in general would be a good thing. And so, to the extent that they have more wiggle room to innovate and experiment, that strikes me as a good thing for legal education.
0: Dan, I'm curious. You mentioned in your earlier remarks that this was something that certainly when you were a dean was talked about. Was there a movement at an earlier stage? Could you have seen this happening back when you were a dean? Or did it kind of have to reach this point in history for it all to sort of come toppling down? And now that you're a faculty member, what are you hearing from your fellow colleagues about this?
2: So it's a really interesting question. Why now? It wasn't that there was some episode that happened. You know, I've talked to Ingerken and others. And it wasn't like there was a uprising from the faculty or from the alums, which is why it makes this decision, you know, all the more interesting and courageous, because it wasn't driven by sort of one episode or one event. So there's no really good answer to the question of why now, rather than five years ago, 10 years ago, other than maybe fatigue and how the rankings were being done. I'd like to think, apropos Vanna's comments, that, you know, the combination of legal journalism, employer dissatisfaction, the sort of how... What we're seeing in kind of the inertia in legal education, the high costs and all of that has generated an enormous amount of, come on, enough already. There has to be some substantial change and U.S. news is a piece of it. I will say this, in the olden days, in the stone ages when I was just beginning my academic career and folks that you know were really prominent then, John Sexton, former dean of NYU Law School and others, the movement was less about abandoning the U.S. news but developing alternatives to U.S. news. And, you know, the business schools were, of course, a step ahead of us. And as a result, there's a plethora of business school rankings. With all due respect to above the laws rankings and others, there's U.S. News, and then there's just a bunch of other stuff that a lot of students regard as noise. So we had our opportunity in legal education, but I think that opportunity is passed by a couple decades to develop alternative rankings that the students, that is consumers and employers, really regard as sort of equivalently important as U.S. News. So I don't think U.S. News is going anywhere. You know, they have enormous skin in the game and economic interest. And I think this movement, it's naive to suppose that it's going to affect the crumbling of the ranking. But I do think the signaling about we're not going to play the same kind of game that U.S. News has given us is an important one part of a statement that we're going to innovate and also we're going to do what's better for our students. And I didn't really answer your question, why now? Again, I'll give credit where credit's due To an innovative new generation of law school leaders that is more diverse, that is more data-driven, that's more responsive to, you know, external events in different ways. I think it's more ideologically diverse, which I think you and I would agree is a good thing, long time in coming. And so that's generated maybe some movement that, you know, 20 years ago, for a combination of reasons, just wasn't there. Also, one other point. This is a longer story for a longer day, but I'll just mention as a footnote, as we say in the business, is I think the ABA was a much more powerful figure in terms of the oversight of law schools and its embeddedness in what law schools do or don't. I think for a variety of reasons, the ABA simply does not provide the kind of leadership and engine of either innovation on the one hand or regulation on the other hand. And I think nature abhors a vacuum. In the absence of ABA leadership, and the absence of AALS leadership and other sorts of organization, the change has to come from the ground up. And it's starting to come from the ground up, meaning from the schools themselves, rather than just being generated from outside interest groups and organizations like the ABA and others that are sort of telling the law schools how they should operate.
1: And to your point, Dan, at least from the applicant side of things, you know, we have an organization that represents the schools, right? LSAC is a consortium of the participating schools. LSAC puts certain information out there to make publicly available certain information about each law school that is on the LSAC platform for applicants. Could law schools be doing a lot more to make information more available and more transparent? I would argue yes. I've been arguing that for some time. But they already have a way to do that. And that would be through LSAC, which is the interface for all of the applicants, right? When they're going through the process. Although
2: I know we're winding down, let me just jump in and say with all due respect to LSAC, Kelly Testing's leadership, and others, it is an organization whose economic well-being stands or falls on law school's use of the ElsAC
1: Absolutely. Let's not ourselves. And I've always wondered, and I am not it, I am not an antitrust specialist. I do not right. play one on TV. I have always wondered. How do they get away with having the platform that all applicants have to use to apply to law school? And they also create and administer the test that until recently has been the test that you use to apply to law school. If I could create an analogy to undergrad, it's as if the people who make the Common App also are the same as College Board. And that actually creates problems for applicants. For example, if an applicant registers, so much as registers for a future test, schools that they're applying to can see that they've registered. I think that shouldn't be anyone's business, but the applicants. And it creates problems for applicants because all of a sudden there are some schools, not all, they all have different policies, will say, well, we're not even going to review your application, even though you already have a score because we can see that you've registered for one in the future schools shouldn't have that kind of visibility. And it's only because of this huge market power that LSAC has that schools even have that kind of visibility. I think it's very troubling. That's a
0: very interesting point. And Just by the comparison to undergraduate admissions, even though the three of us, our college days are a little bit behind us, we talk to people. And I know that in my day, the SAT was so dominant. And now, from what I understand, the ACT is a very strong contender and in some areas of the country has even supplanted it. So it's interesting to see market disruption on the undergrad level, but nothing near that in The law school level. So we are winding down, but I'd like to actually close by allowing you any final statements or observations. And Dan, I guess we started with you. So I'll give Anna the last word. So, Dan, do you want to offer any final thoughts? David, you
2: asked before, and I'm not sure I really got to really respond to the good question you asked Will this U.S. news change and the abandonment by many law schools have an actual impact on law school decision making and choice? We've talked a lot about admissions and appropriately so. But I think it will be interesting to see whether some changes at the margin will happen. And actually, I'm, again, sort of optimistic, even reducing the impact on expenditures per student, which has been a way in which the law schools may have justified, you know, higher salaries. I mean, I'm going to get tarred and feathered by my faculty colleagues for saying what I'm about to say, is maybe the pressure for law school faculty salaries and other accoutrement of the business will be less profoundly important if it doesn't affect rankings, decisions made about employment. I mean, we could go down the list, but I think these are marginal decisions, but not unimportant decisions. And so it may be one of the salutary results. And Dean Gerken and some of the other deans made mention of this is will give law schools the freedom to pursue some goals and objectives that it was not impossible to pursue in the world of U.S. news hegemony and the formula being used, but it was difficult to do. Then we have a natural experiment. Then we have an experiment which we can see the schools that have made these adjustments that are independent of U.S. news, whether they will be rewarded in the marketplace. And, you know, Anna's judgment from working with so many applicants would be better than my judgment. I hope the answer is yes. I hope the answer is that some students would, even in the face of having rankings information, say, you know, I like the cut of your jib, law school X, <laughs> in terms of what you're doing and making these changes. And then again, that would be a really positive development for legal education.
1: Yeah, I'll just wrap up by saying that I really do admire the deans that have very publicly opted out of the rankings. It sounds like even if it is mostly optics and even if it doesn't turn out to change much in the world of the rankings, I think it's an important position to take. And it's one that hasn't been taken until now. And it really did require the thought leadership of those first deans that did it. And they have inspired other divisions. So colleges haven't moved so much but all of a sudden medical schools are opting out. I don't think that would have happened if law schools hadn't started first. Somebody had to be the first mover here. And I really admire that handful of law schools that moved first. I think that that took some courage. And are we going to see a bunch of innovation? I hope so. I think that's long overdue, as I was saying before. And I think the one thing that we haven't talked about today, and maybe we have that for another another podcast, is that one of the things that law schools do have to be mindful of, even if they have more flexibility in the future, is that there are studies showing a correlation between LSAT score and bar passage rate. Dan would have more granular information about this because he's been so involved on the testing side. And I do appreciate that on the admissions side, you don't want to admit people just to set them up for failure. You don't want to admit people to law school who are not likely to pass the bar. And that is the sticky wicket for law school admissions, that you don't have in MBA admissions, you don't necessarily have in undergrad admissions. That is particular to law schools. And so I think that will remain to be seen how that all unfolds if schools, for one reason or another, end up having more flexibility around their admissions policies. I would love to be able to tell applicants, oh, you will not be as beholden to the LSAT as in times past. Time will tell. But I think that the bar passage question is an important one. And I'll be really curious how the data unfold around that and what law schools end up deciding to do about it.
0: Well, I will have to have you both back to talk about that. And that is another hot topic. Should the bar exam be the gatekeeper mm-hmm. for yeah. the legal profession. And so we have, we really, have thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Yes, really? exactly.
2: Thought, we have the receipts. We
0: have the receipts. Well, thank you. Thank you so much to you both. This has been a great conversation. I know my readers will really enjoy it. Anna, Dan, I am so grateful for your time and your insight. Thank you,
2: David. Keep up the great legal journalism work and commentary work that's so very, very important to all of us.
1: Great talking to you all. Thank you so
0: much to Dan Rodriguez and Anna Ivy for sharing their insider insights with me. After our conversation, I feel cautiously optimistic about the direction of American legal education, but time will tell. Thanks to Next Firm for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast. Next Firm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact Next Firm at 212-292-1000. Or email career development at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at DavidLatt at substack.com, and you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to Original Jurisdiction. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction Newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, March 8. Until then, may your thinking be original and your
1: jurisdiction free of defects.